Welcome to Rising to the Top Lessons in Leadership, brought to you by Columbia University. This is a podcast where we interview senior industry leaders who share the secrets of their success and reveal pivotal moments that impacted their career path. Come listen as they shed light on obstacles they overcame, as well as wins they achieved. My name is Paul Maniachi from the Career Design Lab, and I will be your host for today's discussion with Sheila Sarum of Project Basta. Such an important part of the journey of going from education to employment is really understanding your own skills and strengths, and sometimes the path to that is less direct or obvious than we might think. Sheila Sarum is the founder and CEO of Basta. Basta is a nonprofit committed to bridging the college to career gap for first generation college goers of color. Before the founding of Basta, Sheila served as a director of the National Leadership Recruitment Team for the KIPP Network. Sheila earned her bachelor's degree in international business from Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver. Hi, Sheila. Thanks so much for being with us today. We're, we're excited to hear about your, your career and any advice you might have for our students. Yeah, I'm super excited to be joining you. In our prior call, you had discussed the idea of your career being bookmarked by the quest for truth and self-discovery, how this could be separated into two parts trying to meet others' expectations versus pursuing your own interests. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was uh, clearly feeling pretty existential (laughs) in our our first call. But yeah, no, I think think that's an accurate depiction of of my career. I'm a first-generation American, um, and so... Um, when it comes to sort of learning the, the ropes of what it means to be American, um, my parents and I were really doing that together, um, whether it came to things like American children have sleepovers, which was a new concept for my family, or what are the careers that are out there after you graduate? I would say, you know, I graduated college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew that my parents were, had dissuaded every kind of like public service oriented suggestion I had made. I'd wanted to go to the Peace Corps and they weren't into that. I'd wanted to do a fellowship in China at one point. They weren't into that. So, um, you know, I kind of got from their feedback or reactions to my various options that they really wanted me to to take a more traditional sort of corporate path. And so that's what I did. Um, You know, I didn't have like a real specific focus when I left college. And so I'm sort of taking roles that fulfilled their expectations and needs of me just made a lot of sense to me at the time. Um, And I ended up working mostly in tech in Western Europe, um, uh, but never really stopped thinking about the things that made my heart sing. And so uh, when I lived abroad, that was spending a lot of time volunteering on um, American political campaigns through um, the Democrats abroad sort of uh, organization. And so I really tried to turn my my passion for public service into more of a hobby over those years. You know, about five, six years into my career is uh, when the 2008 election happened, which at the time I thought was the biggest election that was going to happen in my lifetime, at least. I was wrong, uh, as we saw uh, a little, you know, a decade later. But, you know, Obama had just won the primary to be um, the Democratic nominee for the presidential ticket. And I thought, you know, it's either now or never. And I gave up my private sector life and job and salary and um, started working on campaigns, Um, which for anyone who works on campaigns, it's a lot of work, a lot of grind, a lot of satisfaction, very little money, very little of your own personal time. You know, that jump, that leap from the more corporate, cushy, 
career journey to one that was full of risk was sort of the moment where I thought, you know what, it's time to sort of put my my needs at the center of my career. I will say, um, I don't regret those years that I um, spent sort of fulfilling what I know were my parents' wishes, um, but also weren't in direct conflict to any sort of informed goals I yet had. So it made a lot of sense for me to sort of start my career that way. And I learned a ton of lessons working in the corporate space that have been very helpful to me since. My understanding is that as far as your your career journey, so you do the the political campaigning and then do you you end up at KIPP? Is that correct? So I spent, um, I did two campaign cycles and again, like loved doing work that felt really close to my heart, um, felt that I felt really passionate about getting people elected that I thought could make a difference in, you know, city states and across the country that, that, that work was very compelling to me, but the lifestyle was not, um, I didn't like campaign lifestyle. And so I, you know, I feel like I learned a little bit about what I like and don't like, and then, um, used that to, to make my next decision. So I was very lucky that I got to work on the Obama campaign. And then the next campaign I worked on was in Virginia. Um, so right outside of Washington, DC. And so through those two jobs, um, I built a network in the DC area and that network got me a job at DC public schools, um, was the next job. So I came to DC public schools to lead all of recruitment and selection for the school district. And, um, that's really about transferable skills. So I worked in sales when I worked in the private sector, I worked in tech sales, Um, My tech sales um, experience and background were super useful to me when I became a field organizer on political campaigns, right? You're using a lot of the same skills when you're working field, when you're working a ground game for a campaign that you use during sales. And then my field and sales skills were really transferable to my job leading recruitment and selection at DC public schools because recruiting and sales and organizing, all three of those functions use very similar skill sets. So I was starting to see a through line. Um, across my career, even if to somebody who maybe isn't familiar with all of those, they felt like really different career career um, paths that were really disconnected, but they actually, what they have in common is the skill sets necessary to do them well. Um, so it was very clear to me the first time I read the job description for DC public schools, hey, I could I can do this. Like I've done versions of this in other places and in other realms. I absolutely can do this. So I went to DCPS, really fell in love with the mission liked the the quality of life components that I think had been harder for me in political campaigns um, and really loved recruiting. I, um, I loved the relationship aspect of recruiting, but I also love the fact that a really great recruiter has to be super data-driven. So it sort of used both sides of my brain, which I really appreciated and really liked. And then from DC Public Schools, I went to KIPP where I ran recruiting for KIPP nationally. I'm a learner at heart, and so DC Public Schools was a really exciting opportunity to work in a specific community and understand how education worked in a really specific and discreet place. And then KIPP allowed me the opportunity, KIPP, which is a national charter school network with schools all over the country, allowed me to look at education across the country, across the different cities and states, Um, And so it it provided me another lens to understand um, something that I was really interested in and passionate about. KIPP is what sort of laid the groundwork for me to uh, launch my nonprofit, BASTA. Is there one particular pivotal moment that stands out for you? There's been, you know, three critical pivots. I'm not sure I would say one has been more pivotal than another. Um, You know, I think college into my 
first job was obviously an incredibly vulnerable moment uh, that felt really high stakes and was really high high stakes. The second pivotal moment was, yeah, leaving of you know my corporate life and truly my European life because I was living abroad behind to come back to the United States. That that was a big moment. And then uh, the third was sort of the 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 decision to um, explore education. Um, uh, you know, I think the the fourth, which I'm sh- I'm sure we'll talk about, was then the decision to leave my great job at Gip to launch my own nonprofit organization, um, which truly feels like a culmination of those other three major moments, and only possible because I had sort of taken those those three leaps before. That yeah, those those three all feel really equally important. They all felt risky at the time. Um, equally risky, informed, I think is the right word. You know, I was learned, I'd learned enough in that previous sort of phase to know what I liked and don't like in order to make those decisions based on things that I was learning about myself. Going through the process of experimenting or, or trying these different, trying on these different careers allowed you to say, you know, I appreciate this about this career. I like this. Maybe I don't like this, which then took you in a different direction. I think that's really important, uh, especially for our students for them to, to be able to take chances and, and kind of seek the opportunities that, that, that they come across. Yeah. I, you know, you mentioned earlier this idea of transferable skills. You know, I run an organization that connects first-generation college students to their first job after college. And one of the sort of m- most important um, aspects of our program, at the very beginning, we really spend time with young people, helping them to excavate their own skills and strengths. And, you know, we go through two activities that I just think are really transformational to how young people think about their own skills and strengths. The first is sort of what we call the three, three mirrors exercise. And one of the mirrors that we use is really what's a thing that everyone's always complimenting you on. It doesn't have to be something you see in yourself, right? Like really take yourself out of it. What's a thing that other people are always saying about you? And um, let's dig into that a little bit, right? So what we find is that most people can actually tell you what that is. What's the thing, the one or two things that other people are always observing or remarking on about you? And that's a really smart place to start understanding what your strengths are. Because the, the interesting thing about strengths is oftentimes they come naturally to you. And so you're just, you're not really thinking about them as special. And it's really through engaging with the people who know you closely, uh, you know, your personal life, your professors, the the people who are on group projects with you, where you really start to understand sort of what's unique about you that may feel natural, but doesn't feel natural to, to most other people. So we find that's a really pivotal exercise to go through to understand how your strengths might look to others. And the other really pivotal exercise we find that we go through with young people is, you know, we work predominantly with first-generation college students. Yes, some of them have internships, but in large part, um, the young people we work with are working hourly wage jobs. So they might be working in retail or, um, you know, working in restaurants or a whole host of, of sort of roles where they um, earn enough money to support themselves as they're going through college. And what we found is there are oodles of transferable skills they're gaining in those um, jobs. And part of what we have to do is we sort of go through and, and we're doing just what you would imagine is regular old resume coaching has helped to excavate some of those strengths. I always share this example of working with a young man who kept saying to me, oh, I just work in retail. I just work in retail. And when we dug in, we realized he worked at the highest grossing kind of retail outlet for this particular chain in the entire country. And he was responsible for counting down the register at the end of the night and sharing those numbers with headquarters. There's just so much in that. There's trust, right? Obviously, HQ had a lot of trust in this young person that they had put him in charge of the register. 
He could deal with high volume, high stress situations. I mean, there was just countless strengths um, and transferable skills that an interviewer would love to hear about in an interview setting. And we had to make sure that he first saw and understood that those were strengths and transferable skills. Um, so I just, I wanted to make sure I shared that because it's just such an important part of the journey of going from education to employment is really understanding your own skills and strengths. And sometimes the path to that is less direct or obvious than we might think. You talked a little bit about your organization, BASTA, and, and I was wondering if you could share with us where the idea for that came from, how you decided to come up with BASTA, and then also it's one thing to come up with an idea for something. It's another thing to actually action that and to, to, to say, I'm going to start an organization and put in all the work and get the funding and the support to do that. So if you could think of the question in those two terms. So where does the idea from BASTA come from? And then how do you say, I'm going to do this? So the idea was really a culmination of my personal life and my professional experiences. So, you know, as a first generation American, I had sort of um, done a lot of figuring out on my own across my life. Each of those career pivots came through moments of self-discovery and then taking risk, right? So I had sort of done this, um, done this on my, you know, quote unquote, on my own. Um, and I, I thought that's just how careers worked. I thought everyone was going on the same path that I was on until I started working in recruitment and selection or, you know, otherwise known as human capital in the education space. And so um, once I was working in human capital, I had a front row seat to how hiring actually works. And I realized, gosh, yeah, there's people who apply online and sometimes they get lucky and get, get an interview. But a large part, um, a large way, sort of component of how people are getting hired is through people they know, people submitting their resumes, people telling them about jobs, people may inf informally referring them. And I just wasn't aware of that. Um, so call it naive, but I just really wasn't aware that that's how a lot of people were getting hired. Um, and so I think two things happened simultaneously in my professional life. One was I had a front row seat to how hiring happens and realized, gosh, there's a whole nother kind of way this can unfold than the way it unfolded for me in my own life. And I was working in institutions, DC public schools, and then KIPP, where we were saying to young people, just go to college, get that degree and everything will be fine. And I just felt like we could go a step further to explain to them, this is how you can make sure it's fine, um, that we weren't necessarily providing. And so I think I looked at my own experiences. I think I was you know, really understanding how hiring worked. And I was looking at the mission of the organizations I was working in. And I thought, you know what, we can do better. So all of those three things sort of culminated in my belief that an organization like BASTA needed to exist. Um, and then, of course, I did what I think a sensible person would do. And I looked online to see if I thought an organization like Boston did exist and nothing was satisfying me in terms of what, you know, what I thought we could be doing from realization to making the decision took about a year. Um, because to your point, it can feel like a particular, particularly risky moment to take that leap. Um, and so I'll say, you know, one thing, you know, I said earlier is, oh, I, you know, I kind of felt like I did everything on my own across my career. And the reason I sort of hesitated in saying that is because if I really think about my life and my career, I am someone who um, 
was naturally inclined to reaching out and asking for help when I needed it in various moments. And so I've picked up lots of mentors along the way or people that I, you know, turned into mentors or guides or advisors. And that's just something I'm more naturally inclined to do. And so that was lucky, right? That just came to me naturally. It was one of my strengths. And so, um, you know, when I was on this sort of year long journey of do I launch this organization or do I not launch this organization? I happened to have a really incredible woman who was my thought partner across that year and was really helping me think about the trade-offs of uh, taking that leap, leaving my full-time job and my benefits and my great salary to launch this organization. And I remember calling her one day and saying, I think I'm going to do this. You know, it was the first time I had said out loud, I think I'm going to do this. And her response without hesitating was, all right, let's do this. Let's think about what's next. And I think about that moment because if she had shared even the slightest hesitation in her voice, I think I wouldn't have had the courage to, to, to make the leap. So, you know, mentors are critical. Advisors are critical. People who see you the way you want to be seen are critical because those are the people that are going to provide that championship and, you know, give you that surplus courage um, when, you, when you want and need it. So I am very lucky. I will say this again. I think picking up mentors and advisors is not hard for me. I'm okay to say I need help. And so that, that's something that's not naturally difficult for me um, and was, has been really helpful to me throughout my life and career and was so, so pivotal in me deciding to move from idea to, to launch. Yeah, that's really useful advice, uh, I think, for our students as well, not to be... Uh afraid to ask for for support as they need it and know that if you have the right people around you they're willing to to provide that support and you don't have to do it all on your all on your own and that makes a big that makes a really big difference it does it really does Sheila can you talk a little bit about what you think are the main misconceptions about underrepresented communities as they relate to work when I think about the life of a first-generation college student, the lived experience of a first-generation college student, this is someone who has chosen a path where there's no one that they can model themselves after, right? They've chosen a path in which they are sort of navigating the territory themselves and finding their mentors themselves and learning how university and college spaces work on their own. There's so much that they are doing um, just to chart the path that makes makes them unique. And then if you sort of add to that, that the majority of first-generation college students, at least that we work with, so in the New York area, to some degree financially independent. So they are to some degree, whether it's paying for some subset of their own living expenses, all the way to fully responsible for their living expenses and the living expenses of their loved ones. That level of juggling priorities and financial management is unique to the first generation experience. And so just those two things, charting a path that's never been charted and the level of priorities that first gen college students are juggling before they even enter the workforce makes them uniquely ready for their first job. And I think that's that's the misconception. We don't need to compare the first gen college student who goes to um, a city or state college to a Harvard grad. We don't need to compare them. They're different students with different strengths and different experiences. And I would argue that the first generation college student is uniquely prepared for their first job. And I think that that's the that's the most important 
belief that defines BASTA. We believe that we are working with students who uh, are uniquely positioned for the world of work and have the assets necessary for the world of work. We're not saying give these young people a chance, right? We don't consider them a risk to the world of work. We consider them an asset to the world of work. And so um, that, that I think is the most important part of what I believe and what drives our model at BASTA. Unfortunately, the way we screen for, for talent at, um, at our employers, do we do over-index where someone went to college and their GPA and sort of these proxies that, yeah, aren't as visible on a first-generation college student's resume always. And so we do sort of bias our selection processes and who we hire in ways that don't put weight on the incredible experiences of first-gen college students. I wanted to kind of shift a little bit and talk about leadership as you're as you're running your own organization that that you uh, that you founded, what has surprised you the most about managing a team and running an organization? When it's small, when it was like a five person team and we were far smaller, I could f- solve every problem. I could fix every mistake. Um, you know, and just to give an example, you know, if we had an event with a major employer and we were supposed to have thirty RSVPs and we only had twenty. Well, I could just text more students, right? That's something I could sort of have. It was within the realm of my control. Um, We are no longer a five-person organization. We're a 25-person organization with a $5 million budget, and we're far bigger. And so I think um, the, 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 the leadership capabilities, what I need to be able to do and the skills that I need to have to run an organization that is, you know, 5x what it was, you know, a few years ago are really different. Um, And so I think for me as a leader, it's constantly reflecting on what got me here, how, you know, what of those qualities and characteristics will continue to serve me in this next phase of my leadership journey, and where might my skills have sort of become a little bit obsolete for this next level of, of the journey, and where might I have to get support to grow new skills and strengths that are maybe less familiar for me or um, that might be my actually be my blind spots. And so I would never go as far as to say turn your weaknesses into strengths because I don't believe that that's the smartest way to operate in the world. Um, and there might be some some dormant strengths in me that, that can be uh, coached and developed for this next phase of my journey. Um, so I think that's that's the most important thing that you know we're constantly, as we grow and evolve, we may have to shed some 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 things that we used to love about ourselves, but are no longer useful to us, um, and also be open and vulnerable to growing new skills and strengths that are going to help us in this next phase of our journey. It's easy to say at work because, yes, I'm no longer running a five-person organization, so obviously I need to use different skills and strengths. But I would argue that's the same with life. You know, what what served you you know, five years ago may no longer serve you today in your personal life as well. And how are we constantly taking stock of what we need to help us get to the next phase of our lives, which requires spending some time thinking about who we want to be. Um, And that's not always something we make a lot of space for. And would you say, Sheila, then that also it might mean that either you need to find support, like you have to either assign those tasks as the as the organization grows or to uh, existing staff or hire new staff, uh, and that might be more beneficial for for the organization as opposed to you taking on something else, uh, which might not be a priority for you, but it's important to to your company. Yeah, I think um, being a strong leader, a good leader, um, I think is part trust, part accountability, and I think you need both of those 
qualities and features as a leader. If you just trust, trust, trust without helping people understand what makes them successful in their job, then um, you're not helping the organization meet its goals. And if you're just, you know, being a micromanager and driving people towards tasks and not providing trust, then you're not getting the full potential. I had an executive coach say to me a few weeks ago, your job is to clarify roles and responsibilities, define deliverables, and then provide people the support they need to get to their outcomes. Clarify roles and responsibilities, define the deliverables, and then provide people the support they need to get to their outcomes. And it's interesting because that sounds so easy in practice, but in, you know, in a busy day, you might be like throwing out a bunch of deliverables, but the person you're managing doesn't truly understand what you need, or maybe they have no idea how to get there, but they're afraid to tell you, or they can't tell where their job starts and someone else's job ends. So when you start to manage a lot of people, that can get really hard. I always encourage, we always encourage young professionals to ask the questions. Like if you're not clear where your job ends and another person's job begins, ask, hey, am I supposed to hand this off to Brett or is Brett going to ask me, right, for this piece of information? Do you want that as a Word document? Do you want it as an Excel spreadsheet? Do you want it this Friday? Do you want it next year? <laughs> um, hey, I could do this in Word, but I really need help if you want this done in Excel. Is there someone I can turn to in the organization that can help me better understand how to use Excel, right? So those are examples of how a direct report can do the man the managing up is what we call it quote unquote the managing up. Um, managers aren't typically aren't intentionally <laughs> hiding information or trying not to give support, but they they I think are moving fast and they're not always thinking about those things as as well, including myself. So uh, Sheila, you seem like you're a very very busy person. You're managing your your own organization, a startup. You're you're a mom. You have a partner. How are you able to manage all these separate things that? that need your attention? I think a few things. Um, one, I have a really awesome partner. And we, for those, for those listening that have children, it is very hard to get parity at home <laughs> when you have kids. Uh, there's just such a strong push in our culture for women to have a certain role and men to have another role or mom, you know, the person who identifies as mom to have one role and the person who identifies as dad to have another role. And um, we have very explicit conversations about that in our house. And I would say we really do our best to be 50-50 in terms of like, think that the, you know, the term mental load gets thrown around a lot. And I don't feel like I carry the mental load in, in motherhood, which is a testament to my partner and how hard he has worked to, to make that possible. And that's partly because we both know that my job founding, you know, being a founder and running a $5 million organization and managing 25 people requires a ton of my, my mental space. One, having a great partner has helped a lot. Um, and, who understands that like it's the totality of hours in the day that we have to think about, not just the hours we're working to make our lives great. And then I think the other thing I'd share is like, I don't expect myself to be superwoman and get an A plus on all three of those things all the time at the same time. You know, some weeks I'm a great mom. Some weeks I'm an, I feel like I'm a kick-ass founder. Some weeks I feel like I'm being a great partner. 
And I just recognize I'm not going to get an A plus on all those things all the time at the same time. I can say that. It doesn't mean it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't feel good to feel like I'm being a B mom or a C partner or a, you know, B minus founder. Um, but I just, I, I've just made peace with that or I continue to make peace with that over and over again. The, the thing we did not talk about in that equation was myself. <laughs> so I don't spend as much time probably on myself in this particular phase of my life as I have in other phases of my life. That is, I guess, sacrifice, if you will, that I've opted for in this particular phase. It, it can't be forever, but I think in these years where my daughter is young and my nonprofit is growing, that's just sort of where, where I am. Sheila, I was wondering if you had any advice that you could share with our students about how they can make the most of their time at Columbia. Absolutely everything that you're doing, experiencing, living is a potential input for your future career, right? I mean, every class that you take tells you something about what you do and don't like. Every group project that you are on tells you something about the roles you naturally gravitate to and don't gravitate to. Every club, every volunteer opportunity, every thing that you're experiencing provides you little tiny signals on how you want to spend your life. And that's both the things you are enjoying and the things you aren't enjoying. And if you took that philosophy class and you didn't like it and you're like, damn, I thought I was going to love philosophy. It might not be the class. It might be the professor, right? So, so like really interrogate. What did you like? What didn't you like? And why? Because that's going to be really, really critical as you're starting to think about your future career. So that, that's, I think, the most important thing. I think what we find often when we're meeting young people who are about to graduate, they've amassed all these experiences and they've learned so much about themselves, but they're not integrating that into thinking about their future career. And that's, that's how you figure out who you are and what you want to do is really building, you know, building on top of your personal experiences of what you like and don't like and what you're good at and what you're not good at. And so I think that that would be my advice. Everything that you're doing is helping to give you clarity about your future career. Thank you for listening to Rising to the Top, Lessons in Leadership. For more episodes, subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. To get more information and tips on how you can advance your career, visit Columbia University's Career Design Lab at careerdesignlab.sps.columbia.edu. Thank you to Peter Shea for sound editing this episode. If you would like to learn more about Project Basta, go to www.projectbasta.com.